So probably a couple of you, uh, many of you might remember a few years ago when the Patriots and the Falcons were in the Super Bowl. It was the Falcons were up 28 to three, one of the biggest comebacks ever, especially being Super Bowl in the Super Bowl. That was incredible. Now I am a Panthers fan, you know, born and raised here in North Carolina, and so I didn't really care. I didn't have a rooting interest in either of the teams, but I was pulling for the Falcons because, you know. For what I do, a character and integrity and morality are important, right? And the Patriots organization, you know. Uh. And uh, so anyway, we were watching this game. We had a bunch of people over, and one of my good friends was there who's a lifelong Patriots fan. Now, he's pretty subdued in general, but still, you know, things like this can make even the quiet people go kind of crazy. So we're sitting there, and they're losing, and it's like 28 to 3, right? And he just is not saying a thing, which makes sense. He's kind of a quiet guy, and you're getting blown out. It's a bummer. No one likes it. But then... The Patriots start scoring, and he's just sitting there, not saying anything. And I'm like, okay, I get it because you're, you're nervous. I mean, it's cool they're coming back, but the likelihood of them coming all the way back is not good, and they start scoring again, and they're down by one score, and he's just still sitting there. And the Patriots get the ball back, and they're driving down the field to tie it. He's just sitting there, and they tie the game. And, he, and I'm like, I don't even want the Patriots to win, but I'm freaking out. Like, this is crazy what's happening here. And he's like, yeah, cool, this is great. Like, what's wrong with you? And then overtime comes. You know, Patriots get the ball. They drive down, and they win. Everyone's freaking out. He's just like, yeah, this is great. I'm like, what are you doing? Right? If I didn't know any better, I would say, you're not actually a fan. How do you just sit there and not do anything? Right? And he just sat, there was no response to what he was seeing. It made no sense to me. And today, as we continue our, our time through the gospel, the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus do things, uh, provoke a response in people. And the question for us is, when you think about Jesus and what he has done, what does that mean for you? What does it make you think? What does it make you feel? Because that's what we're going to see Jesus do here this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black one around you that you can read from. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those black ones home and it's our gift to you. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. So we're only a couple weeks into Mark, and we're seeing the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Last week, we see Jesus begin to heal people. Uh, begin to he-, he even heals Simon, or Peter's, or his disciple's wife's mom, his mother, or Simon's mother-in-law. So he's doing all these things, and then all these people start to show up because word is spreading that this guy is healing people. So people are telling their friends, probably tons of people, you know, at night they're healing people, all these sort of things. All this craziness is going on. He's loving people. People are seeing it. And then it says, this is what happens the next day. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35, after a big crowd, a big scene, people are coming to Jesus, getting healed. It says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, talking about Jesus, got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there, he was praying. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I would think I would be inclined after a day of seeing all this amazing stuff happen, all this amazing ministry happening, that you'd probably be like, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to sleep in tomorrow. I'm going to take it easy. I'm like, that was a great day. But what does Jesus do? He wakes up and he goes and seeks time with God the Father. Now, this is a common theme throughout all of the Gospels in the New Testament, where you see Jesus retreating for prayer and communion with the Father. And I think one of the reasons we see this happening so often in the Gospels is to show us that Jesus and his power and his ability to love and to care for people, that he's not meant to be seen as some sort of sorcerer or magician or just because he is, you know, the son of God himself, he can do all these things. But no, what we see is that he is constantly spending time with God the Father and finding his strength and his comfort in him. So after all of this amazingness that happens the day before, he wakes up early, spends time with the Father, and he's praying. Then it says this in verse 36. 
Simon, this is Simon Peter, the, leading, the leader of the disciples, uh, and his companions searched for him. So they wake up doing what you and I would do. There's a big crowd. Everyone's ready for day two. There are probably even more people there because they have heard what's going on, and they can't find Jesus. So they go and look for him. And in fact, the Greek word that we have translated search here is katadiako, which literally means pursue. But not only that, there's a, there, there's a connotation in this word that's literally like going on a hunt, like this idea of hunting. And so what's literally happening here is this is a manhunt for Jesus. This is not just they woke up and where's Jesus. They're probably freaking out. There's all these people here and we can't find him. So they're going everywhere to try to find him. Now they're going to find him in just a second. But one of the things that I want to point out here is that we're going to see Jesus or we're going to see Peter uh, interrupt Jesus from doing something that is vitally important, right? Spending time with the Father. Now Peter's intentions are good, but he's still interrupting something that Jesus was trying to do. And this is not the only time it happens in the book of Mark. In fact, we see this happening again in Mark chapter 8. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them, you know, he's explaining to them that he's going to die and resurrect and all these sort of things. And again, this doesn't make a lot of sense because if you were here a few weeks ago, we know the primary message of Jesus, as we'll see throughout the gospel of Mark, is that he is inaugurating the kingdom of God. Uh, For most people and for most Jews in particular, they assumed that this meant that this was going to be some earthly kingdom, that he is somehow going to overthrow the Roman Empire that they're going to live in peace and prosperity, and Jesus is going to be king, right? That's what they're talking about. And so when Jesus talks about him dying, the disciples are like, that that doesn't happen. Like, how are you going to lead something if you're going to die? And so he says this, chapter 8, verse 31. It says, Then he, Jesus here, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning around, uh, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. Now, again, if you and I were Peter, we would probably be doing the same thing. What are you talking about we're going to die? And in fact, what they're probably thinking is we are going to fight for you. We're not just going to give up. Like we will literally take up and bear arms to do whatever it needs to be hap- whatever it needs to happen to protect you. Right? In Peter's mind, this is not how this is supposed to go down. But of course, he is not focused on the things of God. Of course, Jesus is trying to teach them what's actually important. And so he says this in verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he being Jesus, said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, right, and your desires and what you think is supposed to happen. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, right, the good news of what he has come to do, will save it. And so what we see happening here in both passages, in Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 8, Peter is the only disciple that's explicitly named. And he, in both of these instances, he is trying to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus is supposed to actually be doing. Right? Spending time with the Father with good intentions, but trying to, he interrupts that. Trying to stop Jesus from dying with good intentions, but he's trying to interrupt that. And so what we see here is that in both situations, you have the leading disciple actually turning into the leading antagonist to Jesus. And it's a reminder of an important point for us, and that is that apprenticeship to Jesus does not consist of controlling his work, but following him. Apprenticeship to Jesus, which in my opinion is probably 
a better cultural term than discipleship. So, Because when we say discipleship, what we often think of is like studying the Bible and theology and apologetics and having intellectual answers, which, of course, these things help us follow Jesus. But following Jesus is not just an intellectual exercise. It's a way of life. Like an apprentice learns not just how to do something from someone who's above them, but they, but they copy their rhythms and their practices so that they can do and accomplish what the person they're studying under is doing. And so we, as apprentices of Jesus, not just intellectual, but in how we live and the practices of getting alone with the Father like Jesus did, uh, it does not consist of trying to control him, but following him. And I don't know about you, but I am someone who has a, I can have a very, it's hard for me to just, uh, follow somebody, right? Like, it takes a little bit for me to, like, actually want to listen to you, which is great on my part, I know. But it's a flaw of mine, right? So, for example, um, driving. I don't like to drive. I don't, I don't mind, like, sitting in the passenger seat in the back. Like, I don't enjoy driving unless there's a group of us and we're driving somewhere where we don't know where we're going and it's really easy to get lost. Then I'm like, let me drive, right? If we're going to get lost, I want to be the one to get lost. If you guys don't know what you're doing, anything, right? It's great of me to think this, right? Right? There, like, there's literal times where I'm like sitting in the back seat, just closing my eyes, pretending I'm not listening to anybody because otherwise I'll get really angry. Or, and this is even more petty, board games. So if I'm with somebody and there's a group of us and, and, and somebody is trying to play a board game and they never played it before, I have to be the one to explain it to them. Otherwise, someone else tries to explain it. I'm like, no, you're not explaining it right. Stop letting them ask you questions. Tell them everything. And then I'm just like, I can't do it, right? It's hard for me to listen. Even if I'm not the best one to do it, even if I don't even know how to play the game, I'll just make something up. But I would be the one that would rather do it. And this is hard for us to do, right? If we are frustrated by something, if we think we can do something better than someone else, or if we're following somebody who's leading us into opposition and it makes us uncomfortable, it is hard for us not to do what we might want to do. Yet we see all throughout the scripture, when people do this, when they try to go their own way instead of God's way, things always go worse for them. It might feel better in the moment, but in the long term, it always goes worse for them. Now, interestingly, this is not the only time as well in the Gospels, and even in the book of Mark, that the disciples are searching after Jesus. There are many times where they're trying to find him because there's a crowd, or they're they're confused, or they want to figure out something, and so they go and they search for Jesus. And this is not really a point from the text, but it's something that, that I have got from studying this and thinking about this, and really, if you look at the whole of Scripture, that oftentimes, people have to literally pursue God in order to hear from them. And yet, if we're not careful, all of us, me included, can be guilty of of wanting God to do something, maybe even a good thing, and we pray about it once, it doesn't happen, and then we just get upset. And the question is, have we actually pursued him? Or maybe this, think of it this way for you and for me in our life, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you want to pursue Jesus, or would you rather him just give you answers? Would you rather pursue Jesus and experience his love and his grace and his mercy, or do you just want his answers? And hear me, there is nothing wrong with wanting to hear from God, right? Particularly if what you're wanting to hear from him about is something good. Like you want to make a wise and a God-honoring decision. And it can be frustrating when you feel like you're not getting a clear answer. But if it's a genie that we are after, we are not going to find it in Jesus. And I have seen this so many times, again, also in my own life, where we get frustrated with God because he hasn't done something, maybe a good thing that we wanted, but we didn't actually pursue him. Like we prayed about it once, or when we thought about it, we might have prayed about it, but we didn't pray about it consistently. We didn't fast. We didn't ask other people to also get in and praying about this thing. We just, when it came to mind, we prayed about it. It didn't happen. And then we get mad at God, even though God did not do what he said he wasn't going to do. We just assumed he was supposed to act a certain way, which he does not promise to do. Right? Would you rather, again, just you want Jesus to give you answers, or do you actually want to experience him and who he is? 
I mean, Jesus invites us as much in Matthew chapter 7. It's a very familiar verse that you have, may have heard many of times. He says it this way. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, what's going on here? Ask is really a word for prayer. He's talking about praying and coming to me. Uh, seek is the Greek word zeteo, which literally means seek after or pursue or to search for. And the word knock, again in Greek, literally means knock or strike. And a lot of biblical scholars and commentators believe that what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us this idea of growing persistence. It's not just like, I'm going to walk up and ask God this one time, and hopefully things go work out the way that I want them to work out. What he's inviting us here to do is to pursue him, to experience him and what we actually need, not just to follow him so we can try to get him to give us what we want him to give us, even if it's not good for us. Right? He's inviting us to pursue him. And so with that in mind, let's go back to Mark chapter 1, and we'll continue and see what happens next. I'll read verse 36 again, and we'll continue. It says this. Again, Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. So they find Jesus. They're probably relieved. And they're like, all right, let's get Jesus. Let's go back. Let's, the crowd is waiting. Let's do this thing. So they find him, and they're looking for him. Now, again, a little bit of a word study here today, but it's helping us understand what's happening here. Uh, the Greek word that we have translated looking for here is actually found 10 times throughout the book of Mark. And every time there are people looking for Jesus in the book of Mark, it always has negative connotations. Now, usually it's the religious leaders who are trying to find Jesus to kill him or to arrest him. But there are times like this where the disciples, even with good intentions, are trying to find Jesus to get Jesus to do what they want to do, even if it's not what he wants to do. Now, that being said, we should seek Jesus. This is not like don't do it, but we should seek it with humility to follow him and to learn from him, not to try to get him to do what we want him to do. So they find him, which is good. But then look at Jesus' response in verse 38. Jesus says this, And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I might preach there too. This is why I have come. Now, if you're the disciples... This is not the reaction you're looking for. You're looking for, oh, thanks for finding me. I didn't know there was a bunch of crowds. Let's get back. Let's continue to heal people. Let's spread the message. Let's do that. But that's not what he does here. In fact, he does the kind of the opposite. He says, I'm going to go to neighboring towns. Now, again, geographically, they're in Capernaum, which is not a very big city, but it's a major tra a trade route. And there are other various towns around, but they're all small and they're all rural. And so, again, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus, his strategy to build a movement just doesn't make sense, right, from a human perspective. What you would assume that he would do is go back to the crowd so that his fame can spread. What does he do instead? He leaves the crowd and goes to these rural, small villages. This is not the strategic move that you would expect Jesus to do. And it's certainly not what the disciples would want him to do, right? Again, if you're trying to lead a revolution, you go where the people are, not away from them. So the question is, why? Why does he do this? Well, I love what Tim Keller says. He's a pastor and author on this passage. It'll be on the screen. He writes, he puts it this way. Though he was riding a wave of popular support, Jesus left it behind. Why? He was much more interested in the quality of the people's response to him than in the quantity of the crowd. He was much more interested in the quality than the quantity. Or maybe put it this way, how you respond to Jesus matters. How you respond to Jesus matters. Is it, is it simply so you can get something from him, 
or is it to know him and to follow him and to trust him even in the midst of difficult times? How you respond and why you respond matters. It makes me think of, I've shared this before, I don't know how this is, I remember this particular moment, but I was in middle school and I got in trouble and I was grounded, which, you know, very rarely happened. And so that's probably why. This is one of the rare occasions. That's a joke. Uh, it happened a lot. And so anyway, I was in trouble and I called my mom. It was a Sunday afternoon because I wanted to go and, and I, to apologize, right? And her response to me was, you're not actually sorry. You're just calling to apologize so that you can go outside and play with your friends, right? She knew what my, what my heart, what, my, what I was really after. Like it wasn't about the relationship. It wasn't actually about being sorry. It's about getting what I wanted. And Jesus is inviting us to experience him, not just what you can get from him. And so if we continue, here's what happens next, verse 39. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, again, Mark is the shortest gospel. It's a very quick, move, quick, quickly paced moving gospel. And so anytime there is a detail given, we have to ask why. Why is he telling us about this particular healing? Because over the last couple of days, Jesus seems to have been healing a lot of people. So why does he tell us about this healing? Well, there's a couple of things I think it's helpful for us to know, particularly in a first century context, things that you would have thought of and you would have understood right away. So first, uh, leprosy was a skin disease and was an illness that covered various diseases. But basically, if you got any form of what they called leprosy, it was essentially a death sentence. Right? You were no longer allowed to, allowed to be around people because people don't want to get infected. They don't want to get sick. Um, also, if you're a Jew, uh, you have the ceremonial laws that if you were, had leprosy, you also would make people ceremonially unclean if you were around them. And so you were kicked out of your family, of your livelihood. Even in the villages that you lived in, you were not allowed inside. They would often have like little leper camps outside the cities and outside the villages where that's where you would live with other lepers. No contact with the real world. Uh, there's no doctor to help you out. There is no medicine. You are poor. You are hurting relationally and physically and emotionally. It was essentially a death sentence. I mean, for lack of a better, I don't know, to help us maybe understand how this might would have been like, I mean, think of particularly the first few months of the pandemic, right? When this COVID thing is here, we're not quite sure, and we're not quite sure how it spreads and all that sort of thing. And imagine March, April, May of last year, you get COVID, and you're like, really sick. You're hacking, you're coughing. I mean, everybody knows that you have it. What do you do? You would stay away. And in fact, if you came into a public place, people would be like, get out of here. What are you doing? Right? Now imagine that that was your life forever. There's no doctor. There's no cure. There's no medicine. There's no scientist looking up treatment. There's no vaccine. There's no mitigation measures. There is no hospital for you to go to. That is your life forever. And this man comes to Jesus in this condition. In fact, it was such a bad thing to have leprosy that we have all of this rabbinical ancient Jewish literature that essentially said, if you had leprosy, you were essentially the living dead because you couldn't do anything that a normal person would do. And there was this idea that if someone could heal a leper, it was like somebody rising somebody from the dead. So this guy comes into this crowd, which, by the way, would have made everybody angry. The social customs, the social norms, everybody would have been livid that this leper would dare to come to a place where everybody else is. And so here's what happens next, verse 41. It says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, 
Interestingly here, even if you were somebody who was sympathetic to people who had leprosy, like let's say you felt bad and you wished good for them, you would have been so socially conditioned that if a leopard came up to you, even if you didn't get angry, you would certainly pull away. Because again, you don't want to be ceremonially unclean and you certainly don't want to get the disease. So everything in you would tell you to back away if you happen to come across somebody who had leprosy. But what does Jesus do? He draws near and he touches him. He invites him to come closer. In other words, Jesus is voluntarily becoming ceremonially unclean for this man. He doesn't care the consequences. He doesn't care what people are going to say or what people are going to do. He is focused on this man. And it says that he had compassion. Now, the last bit of word study here to help us understand what's happening here. um, There's reason to believe that he didn't just feel compassion, but that Jesus actually felt anger. And we say that because the oldest uh, surviving manuscript of this particular passage of Mark doesn't say that Jesus had compassion. It actually says that he was filled with anger. And the reason, we have reason to believe he might actually been, have been filled with anger because the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke both also share this miracle, and they don't talk about Jesus' emotion. Why? Because being angry is weird. Right? Why would Jesus be angry? What, and how would this anger move him to compassion? Well, we also see similar terminology if you're familiar with the story of Lazarus who dies and Jesus heals him and brings him back to life. It says that on his way to heal Lazarus, that Jesus was deeply troubled and grieved. Why? Even though he was going to rectify the the situation, he looked around at the pain and the heartache that people were experiencing, and he was moved with grief and compassion and anger over the suffering they were experiencing. So just as a side note, I mean, this is a great reminder for us that no matter what you might be walking through and what you might be experiencing, God cares. Listen, even in this, uh, the situation with Lazarus where he was going to heal the situation, heal, heal, you know, bring him back to life and make everything okay, he was hurt for the, for the pain that other people were feeling. Even for us now, we know one day Jesus will right every wrong, that no evil deed, evil will be wiped out. There's no more lying, cheating, stealing, or death in his kingdom. It is one day going to be all made right. But in the meantime, he grieves with you and with me. And so he heals this man. He cleanses this man. And again, to ancient Jews, particularly religious leaders, this idea that what is he doing raising this man from the dead? So he heals him. And then he says to him something interesting, verse 43. Then he sternly warned him. So Jesus warned the leper and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So he heals them and he tells them two things. Number one, go show yourself to the priest. So if you had leprosy or various other diseases and you somehow got better or recovered from them, there are a list of things that you had to do in order to be uh, ceremonially clean again and allowed to re-enter society. So he says, since you are now healed, go present yourself so that you can come back into society. But then he says something interesting. He says, don't tell anybody. Now again, if you're trying to lead a movement, Why would you say, don't tell anybody that I did this amazing thing? Why would you say that? And I don't know if you've ever had this question, if you've read the Gospels, particularly more so in the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus does this. He tells people not to tell anybody what he did. The question is why? Well, there are a couple of reasons why, but one one big reason is because he doesn't want people to misunderstand his messianic identity and what he has actually come to do. 
right? Remember, he's here to preach the kingdom of God, but he's trying to tell people that the kingdom of God is not what you expect, right? They expect someone with domineering military control that's going to be over everybody, that you're going to take control, that you can do whatever you want to do in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing or inaugurating is an upside-down kingdom where we love people who we might otherwise not want to love, that we forgive people, that we give people grace, that we don't use our power for our advantage, but to help the marginalized and the oppressed. He doesn't want people to misunderstand what he has come to do, and if they misunderstand too early, it could make a mess out of things. Right? Think of it this way. It's not a perfect analogy, but maybe it'll make some sense to us. Like, think if you won the lottery, and not just like $10,000. I'm talking like multi-million dollars, you won the lottery. The first thing you probably would not do is post about it on Facebook. Right? You probably wouldn't go tell everybody. Why? Because everyone's going to be like, give me some of that. Like, I want. But the wise thing to do if this happened to you, if you came across you know, a lot of money, is to probably get a financial advisor, get some wisdom and advice on how to uh, diversify your portfolio. I don't know. Why don't I say it like that? I don't know. Right? But you got to figure out what you do. If you want to be generous with it, you probably would have someone, you know, walk you through the steps of here's how you can make the biggest impact with the money you have. Like, there are things that you would need to do and to get in place before you want everybody finding out about it so that you can make sure you're doing the right thing with your money. Not a perfect example, but this is one of the reasons why people, Jesus doesn't want to tell people too early about all of some of the things that he's doing because he does not want them to misunderstand what he has come to do. And so he says not to say anything. And then this is the response, verse 45. Yet he, talking about the leper, went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So Jesus heals him, does this amazing thing, and asks him to do two things. And what happens? This man does not, perhaps cannot, do what Jesus asked him to do. How in this, I mean, imagine being this man. How in the world are you not going to tell somebody? I mean, you were dead. You were suffering, you were poor, you were a destitute, nobody ever wanted to be around you, what you thought for the rest of your life, and this man just changed everything. So he goes and he tells everybody, probably because he cannot not tell people. And then not only that, look at the irony of what happens, right? The irony here is that you have a leper who is not allowed to be evolved to, to come into any of these towns or any of these communities because he has this disease. Jesus heals him, which then allows him to come into these communities. And then what happens? The burden that was on the leper is now on Jesus because Jesus can no longer enter into these towns, he can no longer do what this man can no longer do. He not only does he heal this man, but he takes on his pain and even his oppression to some degree. And so he can no longer go into these towns to do what he wants to do. It costs him something. And yet he was willing to do it because of the love and compassion that he has. And so all that to say, as we read Mark chapter 1, particularly in these verses, here's what we see, that Jesus provokes a response. When you actually see and experience and imagine all that Christ has done, it provokes a response, right? That he heals, that he cares, that he's compassionate, that he has anger towards those who are experiencing oppression and affliction, uh, that he would come in the form of a man to come to the earth to do, what, uh, to do for us what you could not do, what I could not do, that he would take the sins of the world to invite us into his kingdom, right? He does not say, you can come into my kingdom if you do X, Y, and Z. He doesn't say, you can come into my kingdom if you just come to church every Sunday and study your Bible and give a lot of money, and pray, and go on mission trips. He didn't say anything. He says, right where you are, you are invited to, into my kingdom, not because of you, because of me. He provokes a response. 
And so certainly how we live matters. We live in a way, but here's the thing. We follow Jesus not out of obligation, but in response to the grace and the mercy that he has given to us. This is part of the reason why we celebrate baptism, which we're doing in a couple of weeks. Right? Baptism doesn't save you, but it is an outward reflection of an inward change. You can go public with what Christ has done for you. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, we want to invite you to take that step because Jesus provokes a response. You cannot read the Gospels and say, man, that's great for him. That's cool. You either believe it or you don't. But man, what an amazing man this is, that he is not after building a crowd for the sake of the crowd. In fact, if you read throughout the Gospel of Mark, and as we will do, uh, obviously, uh, you'll see that the crowds are never a positive thing. In the book of Mark, the crowds are never a positive thing because they're fickle, and they kind of go with how, you know, whatever what else thinks, or they just want something from Jesus. But they don't actually want Jesus. And Jesus here is provoking a response, and for us, a good response, that no matter who you are, what you have done, what has been done to you, that he is inviting you to see and experience his grace. It provokes a response. And so we can pray, as we talked about earlier, the things that are going on in Afghanistan, or as we see this Hurricane Ida coming back into, through the Gulf Coast, going to hit New Orleans later this evening. We can pray, and we can ask God to move, and of course, things happen the way we might not want them to happen, and we might have a lot of questions, but we do not have a God who turns his back on us that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he sees what's going to happen with this hurricane, he sees what's going on in Afghanistan with anger and compassion. And although we have no idea what good can come out of it, we know and we trust and we believe that his righteousness will one day reign supreme. And here's the good news. You and I get to be a part of it. Not because of us, because of him. Jesus provokes a response. He gives us an invitation. The question is, will you accept it? Let's pray.